Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Seminary Unboxed. This is Dr. Matt Ayers, your host of Seminary Unboxed and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Seminary Unboxed is the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we develop trusted leaders for faithful churches. So we continue on in our series on the book of Revelation. We're still in the introductory uh, section, just kind of setting a frame, doing the proper, going through the proper motions, exercises, protocols for establishing a interpretive context um, for the book before jumping right in. We'll get into it very, very soon. I think we have two more kind of like introductory level um, lessons here, one on the date, which we're going to do today, the date of the book. Um, and then uh, after that, the schools of interpretation, which is a very complicated matter. We'll get into that more later. Um, any, uh, nonetheless, let's talk about the date uh, of, of the book of Revelation. I've already mentioned before in previous sessions how identifying the author was essential for establishing the historical context, uh, also the interior logic culture of the particular author, how he or she would have understood uh, the message or at least inspiration uh, as a conveyance to the people of God uh, as a messenger of God. Uh, so looking more particularly at the historical context, we can understand, again, based off the principle of the word of God is not written to us, but it is written for us, we can get it to whom is this book of Revelation written? And if we can understand that uh, as much as we can about that original audience, we can understand what these words meant originally to that audience and thereby uh, have sure footing in terms of um, what God was saying back then in time and space and then have a basis on which to try to cross the culture bridge, the interpretation bridge, to suggest what it could possibly then mean to us. And again, it's hard um, at this level of introducing a book uh, uh, to not launch into, or at least get into the minutiae details and technicality. Minutiae is not the right word, but at least details and technicality of the principles of interpretation. Like there's a massive body of literature that's uh, behind all this sort of stuff and things that are debated. Um, so nonetheless, all that to say, when was this book written? That helps us to understand the original, how the original audience would have understood it, uh, to understand the context to whom it was written. So um, the what I want to go through are the four emperors that have been suggested as far as the emperors who were probably the, the, the best possible choices for who was in power, Roman emperors, at the time of the writing of this book. We'll look at four. And then we'll narrow in on Nero, Emperor Nero and Domitian, as the two best candidates. And then we'll talk about some of the factors in date determination and arguments uh, for the earlier date for the book of Revelation. We're just scratching the surface here. I don't at all presume to um, cover every single you know square inch of the different issues at play. So I just want to give an overview. So let's look at the um, the four different emperors, or at least the dates. Let's say who do we think possibly was reigning in Rome? Because if we can identify that, we can identify date at the time of writing of the Book of Revelation. Uh, the four emperors uh, that are suggested by uh, early church theologians, thinkers. Uh, first is Claudius, uh, the emperor Claudius, which would be A.D. Uh, 41 to 54. Um, this particular emperor has an association, of course, uh, that plays into the interpretation of the book of Romans. Uh, uh, but again, we're looking at Revelation here. So this would be the earliest possible uh, emperor who would have been in power during the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. Um, and this Claudius, as the emperor at the time of writing, was proposed by Epiphanius, um, an early church uh, worshiper. And then we move on to uh, Nero in AD, who was reigning in AD 54 to 68. And Nero, of course, um, we all know, 
um, was an emperor who promoted the persecution of Christians and was very hostile to Christians. Nero is the emperor suggested uh, in Syriac versions of the Bible. So those versions of the Bible would say Nero was in power when the book of Revelation was written. We're going to talk more about this later, but this obviously pulls in uh, into play the notion of 666 being the number of a man and possibly um, being a you know uh, numeric code or... Uh, yeah, numeric code is a good way to put it, for the Emperor Nero. Talk more about that in a moment. Domitian is another possibility, um, 81 to 96. There are emperors in between here, by the way. Obviously, Nero is 54 to 68, Domitian 81 to 96. But these are the ones who are, uh, are favored by the early church in terms of placing the writing of the book. Domitian was suggested by the most. So Irenaeus suggested Domitian, Victorinus, Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen. And those are some pretty strong names. And I will say now that Domitian is where I choose to land as far as the writing of the book. Uh, so somewhere between 81 and 96. And then Trajan, 98 to 117. This is getting pretty late. If this is the Apostle John who wrote this book, um, he'd be well advanced in years if he wrote during the time of Trajan. This was suggested by uh, Dorotheus and Theophylact, uh, suggested that Revelation was written during the time of Trajan. So again, I like Domitian, and I will say that of these four, most contemporary scholars, uh, specifically confessional scholars, uh, that is scholars who believe the Bible to be the Word of God, um, they opt for Nero or Domitian. So let's talk about just why really quick. Um, first off, uh, those who suggest that uh, the book of Revelation was written later, um, either soon after or much later than, let's say, Nero or Domitian. Let's go with Domitian because he's the later um, emperor after Nero. Um, they are only found in authorities many centuries removed from the events. So we saw a moment ago that Irenaeus, Victorinus, Eusebius, coming of Alexandria, Origen, uh, they are uh, a couple centuries removed from the event, but not many centuries moved. You know, one one and a half, two at max, removed from the event. Uh, those who suggest uh, in the early church era, let's say the patristics era or a little before, that uh, the book of Revelation was written much later um, come many centuries after uh, this time. And so, of course, in biblical studies as well as in history, typically uh, the the older things are the more authoritative. So if these things are further removed and more recent, these suggestions, then they carry less weight and less stock. So that's a first observation, uh, that the late date is found only in authorities many centuries, centuries removed from these events. Um, I want to talk really quick about some of the factors that come into play with determining the date of Revelation. The primary factor indicating the date is punishment for individual groups or um, groups un individual, excuse me, or groups unwilling to participate in the imperial cult. Um, so it is very clear in the book of Revelation that what the audience is dealing with is persecution for not uh, participating in the imperial cult. What I mean by that is not worshiping Roman emperors and not conceding that the Roman emperors are deities or gods or giving due homage to uh, Roman emperors who claim to be divine, whether that's after their death or during their life. Um, like Caesar, for example, as far as I know, I'm not a you know historian. And so, but according to the research I've done, you know, Caesar did never claim to be God during his lifetime, but later it was, divinity was attributed to him after his death. Nero, however, did claim equal, uh, 
to be divine, to be God. And then, of course, um, especially Domitian, uh, years after him, and it became more and more popular as time went on. Um, interesting, then, that the Roman Empire f- uh, fell not that long after that, after you know it became regular practice for these emperors to claim equality with God, or at least divinity, let's say, um, members of the Greco-Roman pantheon. So in any case... Um, so, in Revelation, it's clear that there is persecution coming from um, external forces for those who are not willing to participate in the imperial cult, the cult of the empire, worship of emperors. Um, and so the question then is, which, when did that begin? And that helps us begin to identify a date, because it, it wasn't always that way. So Roman emperor worship marked the cultural context then of, Asian, of the Asian recipients of Revelation. And again, when we say Asian... We're talking about Asia Minor. So the letters to the seven churches who are addressed in the first or the chapters two and three of the book of Revelation are all located in Asia Minor. So that's clearly the place where people were being persecuted who were unwilling to participate in the imperial cult. Um, so let, let's look at some script, some verses from Revelation in support of this. Revelation 13, verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, for he has given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And so the beast here, as we'll learn when we get into the book, is um, symbolic of Rome. And this quote is, who is like the beast, who can fight against it? They worshipped the beast. In other words, they worshipped Rome. So it's obvious that we have people worshipping Rome. Now, it could be uh, that this is not an explicit form of worship. You know, I think that worship, people worship sports teams, but they don't think of it that way. So is it possible that people in ancient Roman society were worshipping uh, the notion of Rome and not realizing it was a form of worship? Uh, it's certainly possible, uh, but it's also possible this is explicit worship. This is worship of emperors. Uh, Revelation 13, 15, the following verse, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. It might cause those who would not worship the beast, excuse me, worship the image of the beast to be slain. So here it says uh, that those who are not willing to worship the beast are killed. So if you're not willing to worship the beast, who is Rome, it's symbolic of Rome, uh, then you're, you're, it's punishable by death. So it seems here to be clear, to me at least, that the book of Revelation was written to an audience in Asia Minor around whom uh, it was very much required to participate in the imperial cult. And if you didn't, the consequence was death. Um, so that, again, that helps narrow our historic window. Revelation 14, 9 to 11. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its images and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand. So here we have again, worshiping the beast. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name... So a lot of what we read here is about the consequence or punishment for worship of the beast, but it's framed by the declaration that people are, in fact, worshiping the beast, and there will be a consequence. Revelation 16.2, for further support, so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So again, over and over again, we have worshiping the beast as a theme, at least in these three instances. Uh, declared pretty explicitly. 
So emperor worship was common, uh, beginning with Julius Caesar and Augustus, but they were, again, deified after their death. Um, it was not until the reign of Domitian that failure to honor the emperor as a god became a political offense and punishable. So even though Nero did, in fact, punish people for not worshiping him, him, it wasn't actually like legislation or law that if you didn't participate in the imperial cult, it was punishable by death. <coughs> Excuse me. So that came during the time of Domitian, which is why a lot of people tend to think that Domitian during his reign is the time of the writing of this book. Um, arguments for earlier dates. Um, so again, this is in um, conversation with those who would suggest that Revelation was written much, much later. Um, so or not even much, much later. Let's say it was written during the time of Domitian, which is approaching the second century. Some would say that, no, it was written before this. It was written earlier than, uh, let's say, 80, 90 AD, uh, because there's a reference to Jerusalem, or at least measuring the temple in the book of Revelation, namely in chapter 11. I was, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. And it goes on. But if this is a literal temple that an angel is telling John, go and measure the Jerusalem temple, well, that didn't fall until AD 70. And so if this is in reference to a still standing temple, then this book or letter must have been written prior to AD 70. And uh, prior to AD 70 would place uh, the writing in the time of Nero. So Nero reigned until 68. Uh, so that would support a Nero and a little bit of an earlier date or even Claudius, 41 to 54. But certainly not Domitian, because his reign began in 81, which had been after 70, and certainly not Trajan, which began in 98. Um, so reference to the temple is one support for yet an even earlier writing of the, of the book. Um, but uh, many would argue, and this is the camp that I fall in, could be wrong, willing to concede this if further evidence presents, uh, but that this uh, measurement of the temple is symbolic. Uh, that it's not a literal Jerusalem temple. At this point in the story of salvation, Jesus has replaced the physical building that is the temple with his body that is the church. That's made clear all throughout the New Testament. Um, so there's no refuting that notion that the new temple is the believers in Christ, Christ followers, those filled with the Holy Spirit in fellowship with God through reconciliation, atonement, the blood of Jesus, all that good stuff. And so the measuring of the temple then and that we find in the book of Revelation chapter 11 it's not a literal historical temple that fell in AD 70, some would suggest, but rather um, the counting of the people of God, which we also find in the book of Revelation, numbering the 144,000, for example. And so this would be a symbolic temple. Uh, f more than just the, uh, the shift, the ecclesiological shift in the New Testament from the temple being a building to the temple being a people, we do have Old Testament precedents for the measuring of a symbolic temple. Of course, you know, in Ezekiel chapter 40, an angel measured the temple. Um, measured the temple, in that case, it demonstrated God's protection and ownership of the people of God. That's what it means when you get measured, that God has is owned you and protects you. And now the sense of ownership, um, of course, is going to raise maybe raise some eyebrows to among some audiences, because you don't own people as you do possessions. But remember, we're working in an ancient Roman context um, of ransoms being paid and us being servants of Christ. We'll get into those notions when we actually get into the opening verses of the book. Um, so in any case, it could be that rather than Romans 11 referring to the actual Jerusalem temple that fell in 80, 70, thereby restricting the date prior to 70 of the writing of the book, we could suggest that that temple is in fact symbolic, leaving room for this letter to be written after <clears throat> the destruction of the temple, which would include uh, Domitian. 
Uh, G.K. Beale and David Campbell in their shorter commentary on Revelation. And by the way, uh, shorter commentary. G.K. Beale wrote a massive commentary on Revelation. And then he rewrote a shorter version that is still, I think, 500 plus pages along with David Campbell. They say this. Revelation 11, 1 to 3 shows that the church is sealed for bearing an enduring and loyal witness to the gospel, which begins to lay a basis for the final judgment of those rejecting their testimony. What are we saying here? According to Beale, his take is that the temple in Revelation 11 is not literal. It is the body of Christ. It's symbolic. And that the counting uh, is a demonstration of the sealing of the church uh, uh, as a response to their loyal and faithful witness. Um, so that just gives you a specific source that suggests, I said many believe this is a symbolic temple, not literal. Beale and Campbell would be one, and there are others. So um, as far as early date, you know, we have the temple. Uh, that's one. That's an argument for the early date, if it's literal. But a second argument for an earlier date, let's say during the time of Nero, is of course the appearance of the number 666. Um, so while there are various views on the proper interpretation of the number 666, it is most likely, and again, likely, I'm not saying sure, um, you know, I'm not going to die on this hill, but it's most likely that it refers to Nero, which would indicate that Revelation was written during Nero's reign, although there is a rebuttal to that. So I do believe uh, that 666 does refer to Nero, and I'll talk more about why when we get to that appearance. Look at the occurrence of 666 in the book of Revelation, but essentially, uh, as most listeners will know, you know, letters had equivalent numeric value in Hebrew. And when you write out the name Nero in Hebrew, which has an N at the end in Hebrew, Neron, it equals 666. And also, if you write Nero Caesar, um, it renders 666. Uh, some versions will say 616, which you can also do the math and not much of a jump at all to arrive at 616 using Nero Caesar. So in that case, right, um, man, that seems like a pretty narrow um, application. I don't know what else that could refer to. There are suggestions, but Nero seems to be the most obvious. Remember that when this does appear in the book of Revelation, it says uh, that this is the number of a man. So um, if this is re in reference to Nero, it could be that this letter was written during Nero's lifetime. Um, a couple things to mention about this, however, and I won't call this a rebuttal, um, but for those who favor or prefer a, a Domitian date, which I do, uh, again, uh, not don't hold that with a closed fist by any means, but it could be that this is a reference to um, the spirit or likeness of Nero as one who is uh, vehemently persecuting the church, that he is a representation, sort of like an antichrist, right? So we know that there is a the Antichrist, right? Definite article, the. Um, but there's also been, of course, many Antichrists, as the Bible says, in the likeness of the Antichrist. And so it could be that Nero is a version of the, you know, the preeminent enemy, if you would, of the church, um, the dragon, the one behind it all, the one um, who is using the beast of the land and the beast of the sea to do his bidding to wage war against uh, the offspring of the woman and her children and her additional children. That's Revelation language from chapter 12. So it could be that this is in reference to one in the likeness of Nero, one who is persecuting the church. It's possible. There's certainly room for that. It's not a stretch by any means. Um, so 
uh, it's most likely, though, that we can conclude that um, Revelation was written at the end of Nero and the beginning of Domitian's reign, if not during the reign of Domitian. So um, that's about as much depth as I want to get into uh, on this dating issue. Uh, there's a lot written, um, and I can recommend you know different things to read um, on this topic. Uh, I place it Nero, Domitian, I think, um, probably Domitian for me. However, I would say uh, that what's common across them Oh, I did want to mention one more thing. I'm sorry about Nero. There was this rumor about that Nero had faked his death and that he would resurrect or uh, that rumors of his death had gone around and that he came back later. And so there's a notion of not being defeated by death. And later we're going to see how a beast rises up out of the sea who suffers a mortal wound but isn't but doesn't die. And of course, this is a, a parody of the lamb, one who appears as if he was slain. You'll notice in Revelation that there's lots of <coughs> parodying going on. We have the unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts, as well as the trinity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have one uh, who is a lamb who appears as if he was slain, and you have a beast who suffers a mortal wound. Uh, Jesus has uh, diadems and horns, as does the beast, So, uh, or at least the dragon does, I think, if I remember right, um, being that we're 12 chapters out still from chapter 12. In any case, um, Nero, there was all this discussion about resurrection and not being defeated by death. Well, that, of course, is going to be a <coughs> very important theme for the Christian community uh, because, you know, the claim to messiahship of Jesus as the divine son and the long-awaited Davidic king is his resurrection. And so what would the implications then be of one who claims to have resurrected, namely Nero? So Nero's kind of got a particularly interesting uh, role in the narrative, I guess you would say, in terms of how the first century church would be thinking about their surroundings and their claim uh, based off of God's revelation in the person of Jesus Christ of ultimate victory. You know, if there's another one that resurrects who is the enemy, does that mean that, that there is another who is on equal plane or an equal category? Is, is, is Nero God if he does resurrect? So there's all these questions that come into play with Nero with regard to rumors of his resurrection or return from death. We'll talk about that more later. Uh, but in any case, uh, just as a recap, Nero or Claudius, excuse me, Domitian, I prefer Domitian, a little bit of a later date. Um, and the, the main factors in determining the time of writing are uh, persecution, and that's punishable by death <coughs> for refusal to participate in the imperial cult. We see that in Revelation explicitly. People were worshiping the Roman Empire, and if they didn't, they could be punished by death. So we go, well, when was that happening? Well, it began with Nero, and it was really in full-blown effect during Domitian. Um, but also another factor in play of determining the date is the number 666, which probably refers to Nero, which also gives us a date. And then, of course, the reference to the temple and measuring the temple, if the temple was still standing at the time, if this is a literal temple. So that's the date. <clears throat> that's, that's our short session on the date. And the next thing we're going to do um, is talk about, excuse me. Uh, different schools of interpretation. This is our last little lesson before jumping into the book, but it is important. I really want to get into this book. But I do want to talk and define very briefly the four schools of interpretation, those being historicism, futurism, preterism, and idealism. Those are the, the four schools, and, and we'll define those and talk about how it impacts interpretation because uh, we'll refer to these things as we move throughout the book. We'll say, okay, in this text, particularly Revelation chapter 20, um, this is the futurist interpretation of this chapter versus the historicist interpretation 
versus the preterist versus the idealist. So we want to define those different schools of interpretation uh, so that we have our buckets ready for when we arrive at particular places in the book to say this is how these various schools would deal with this. You know, it's interesting, I find, um, and I'll talk more about this in the next session when we deal with this, but I find that um, most evangelical Christians, which I count myself a part of, are only really aware of the futurist school uh, because of dispensationalism and what a difference that it's made, you know, how it's, let's say, been... Uh, People are relative, and evangelicalism, evangelicals, again, myself included, uh, tend to be uh, more conversant with left behind series and dispensationalism, rapture theology, and all that stuff because of the way that it's lit various literature and forms of media has made its way through the pews of our evangelical churches. Well, that, you know, dispensationalism is just even one subcategory of futurism. There's different categories of even futurism. So there are these other possible ways of interpreting the book that I think um, are at least worth considering and going over. And they make sense. It's not a big stretch, but um, but it's it's always a bit of a surprise to learn that most people are only aware of futurist or specifically futurist dispensationalist interpretive schools. Um, and when I say other different different schools of interpretation, I'm not talking about just contemporary. I'm talking about the way that the church through the centuries for, you know, 2,000 years nearly now, has interpreted various passages. So, like, how did Irenaeus interpret um, Revelation chapter 20? Was he a preterist? Was he an idealist? Was he a futurist or historicist? How did John Wesley interpret it? So this isn't like, um, you know, a contemporary Western Academy, um, you know, Western English-speaking European scholars coming up with these different frameworks. Um now, they are coming up with terms for these things, but these different schools have existed all throughout in terms of how uh, the history of interpretation of the book of Revelation. So, um, so anyway, we'll look forward to getting into that, and then we'll get into the book. So um, today we dealt with the date. Um, again, I'm going with Domitian, uh, who lived and reigned in between 81, or at least reigned 81 to 96 uh, AD. That's when I think this book was probably written, but it's still very possible. I'm not averse to the possibility that was also during uh, the reign of Nero. Nonetheless, what is consistent, whether it's Nero or Domitian, is that we are dealing with an audience who is suffering persecution for their faith that their faithfulness to Jesus is creating ab adverse, difficult situation uh, for their everyday lives. Uh, it's causing them, to, some of them at the very least, to be poor, to be without power, uh, to, be, to make a great sacrifice. And, and of course, the ultimate is to give one's own life. We know and read about Antipas in the letter to the church at Pergamon, the one who is the faithful witness who endures to the end. Um, <clears throat> we know that this is a church who, uh, while they know that Jesus is resurrected and ascended and they worship him as the true, the true one, um, as is said to the letter of the church at, I want to say Philadelphia, I forget which one it is, that Jesus is the true one, that he's the true son of God versus Roman emperors who claim that they are the sons of God. You know, you had on Roman coins the image of the emperor, and above the head it's, it would say the son of God. Well, Jesus is the true son of God, the one who um, is the one who is a lamb who is slain in heaven. 
the one that the saints worship uh, in Revelation chapter 1, the one with white hair and a golden sash and the tongue of sword, eyes of fire, feet like burnished bronze. Uh, he is the one who rides on a... He's, he's powerful. He is redeemed. He has called God's purpose. So like Jesus is the all-powerful one. He is the king, the true son of God, the true one, the true witness. In contrast to the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, the dragon who's been cast out of heaven by Michael the archangel, who no longer has legal grounds to accuse the brethren. Like the devil has been defeated. That's the message of the resurrection. That's the reality that this first century church is living into. So then how do we explain the fact that we are the ones being killed and persecuted, right? And so that's the question that, that they're dealing with. This is the question that um, Jesus, God the Father and Jesus the Son, through John the Messenger, is answering for them. It's how do we explain, or at least how do we square these two seemingly contradictory, uh, contradictory realities? On the one hand, you're saying that Jesus is, is king and he reigns and he's the Davidic king and everything's been fulfilled in him. On the other hand, um, we're being persecuted and our people are being killed. Does Jesus reign or not? And, uh, and the book of Revelation is answering that very question. And it answers it in a number of ways. Of course, it answers with, with a resounding yes. Of course, Jesus reigns. He has been victorious. Uh, however, the kingdom is both now but also not yet. That... Um, that the, God, that the kingdom of God has not been fully consummated yet, that that will happen upon his return. And he is planning to return, and things have been fixed. And this, of course, you know, events in history, we talked about apocalyptic literature being rigidly deterministic. And, uh, and so they don't have to worry that while things may seem out of control, while the government, uh, who was the puppet of the, red, the, the great red dragon, that is the puppet who was the beast and then the prostitute, or at least the beast of the, of the land, um, they, are, they have been defeated, but their final judgment has not been executed yet. And so that's the message here that we're receiving. We're dealing with the people who are being persecuted because of their faith. Now, that being said, uh, that I try to have a, a takeaway, no matter how you know we're dealing with his, history, historical audience, culture, date, time. Uh, but w- what is the spiritual significance for that for us today? Well, for starters, there's lots of directions we can go with this. But for starters, Jesus promised that we would be his followers would be persecuted. I've said so many times we're following a man who ended up nailed to a cross and dead and rejected. So what are we? What do we expect? Because evil is still at work in the world. Now, that has an end that's fixed to it. That evil will come to an end. It will not have the final say. But if being faithful to Jesus and living out the witness, the way that living the way that Jesus lived in his full commitment to the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in our same efforts, empowered by the Holy Spirit, by grace, living as faithful witnesses to Jesus, the true one, if they nailed him to a cross for the declaration of truth in the midst of darkness, then of course, they will reject us too. So, on the one hand, while it can seem as if maybe Jesus has not won because we're being persecuted, we have to remember that uh, Jesus promised this. This is actually affirms uh, what he taught. And so um, I can say that being a faithful Christian means we will live in adverse conditions. Jesus says you have to be willing to hate your own family to be um, worthy to follow him. And, and he, you know, without launching into like a full explanation of what that means, the short version is that he must have our first allegiance and that that may it will cause problems. He has come to bring a sword. Um, now, of course, we like to talk about God as the God of love, but 
you know, love is balanced out with the wrath. When I say balance, the wrath of God, there is no, uh, there is no love without wrath, especially when evil exists. Um, so, uh, to be a faithful Christian is to live through hard, hard situations Our the kingdom is yes. Now we live free from the power of sin, free from the guilt of sin, uh, with, with the Holy spirit, greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world dwelling within, empowering us to live a life that is uh, true and full and it's witness to Jesus and the Lordship of Jesus. But he has yet to fully reconcile the world externally and we await his return for that uh, to come the full consummation of the kingdom of god so um to be faithful to jesus means to be a lightning rod to proclaim truth in love means to have enemies it's just simply what it means following one who has been persecuted is the job it is what's called for narrow is the way and we could just go on and on so um, being a christian is no small no small deal it's hard um, I preached before the sermon out of Revelation 12 about um, the birth of Jesus. I called it Violent Night. You know, when Jesus comes into the world to recapitulate it, to redeem it, uh, the powers of darkness aren't happy about that, and they will raise hell, literally, to do all they can to prevent that from happening. And so we shouldn't expect that being a Christian is butterflies and rainbows. Jesus has come to bring a sword. He promised persecution. When light is faithful to light in the midst of darkness, darkness will try to overcome it, but it cannot. So don't, as I think I, I hope to share in the tradition of John in his writing, to say, don't be discouraged because we're being persecuted for our faith, or if you are being persecuted for your faith, for that is what Jesus has promised. And he, he creates provision. So we're going to see that in Revelation 12, that uh, the woman who gives birth to the child is... Uh, is uh, flees to the desert to escape uh, destruction from the red dragon who wants to devour the child who was born. And, uh, and this woman in a symbolic of lots of different things, but one I would say is the church, at least the people of God. Um, they go into the desert just as the people of Israel landed in the desert after their deliverance from Egypt. And while it was hard there, it was no Canaan. It was not flowing with milk and honey that God made every provision in the meantime until the fullness is the fullness of his purposes were actualized. Same with us, that yes, while things are hard, while we may be in a desert because the powers of evil still reign, while Christians are faithful to the witness, we may be persecuted, that God makes every provision for righteousness so that we can live a life that is in full obedience to him, even while in the desert, to eventually receive the inheritance, the goal that is the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. So if you're being persecuted, it's what Jesus uh, promised, and it could be not a sign of your disobedience, but rather a sign of your faithful obedience. And the more faithful we are, the more the persecution will be turned up, um, which is quite interesting how that works. But we know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So you want to go deeper in your faith, be, be cautioned. It's going to get harder, but God's provision is there every step of the way, and that the reward is great. And just like John calls us to remain faithful in the face of persecution, uh, so we draw on the Holy Spirit and the grace of God given to us to be faithful, to be true witnesses to Christ, and to not capitulate, and to not, um, let's say, lose our allegiance to him uh, for the sake of being uncomfortable. So I leave that with you. Thank you. Until next time, uh, God bless. <laughs>